Good afternoon, everyone. Pretty good fajitas, huh? Can we say thank you to those who provided for us the, the food today? Also, I just want to say thank you to Bethel Church of Houston for hosting us. Uh, this church has been so gracious to us when we've uh, wanted to meet with, uh, you know, meet here. It's uh, kind of a central area in the city. And so we're very grateful for, for Bethel's generosity to allow us uh, to meet here. Well, we're glad that you're a part of HCPN today. And we hope that what happens around these tables is that you are encouraged. If you're a church planter, we hope that you will leave here believing again that you are not crazy. Because you may have walked in today thinking you are, whatever you're facing these days, but hopefully you'll look into the eyes of people around the table and you will see in their eyes deep faith that what God is doing, he's doing is he is uh, working through his local churches and he is multiplying churches for his glory and for the sake of people that need to be reached in this city. So really, we're, we're grateful for you guys. Uh, we are highlighting church plants and we're excited to share with you a couple of stories from church plants in the Montrose area of Houston. And so Marshall Dallas is going to come and share some story with you, lead pastor of Sojourn Montrose. And then after he speaks, Heath Haynes will come. He's the lead pastor at the Bridge Montrose. So welcome Marshall Dallas. Good, good afternoon. Um, like Bruce said, my name is Marshall. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of belonging to a family of church planting churches uh, that we call the Sojourn Collective. So um, my story is such that I had the privilege of coming on and helping plant the initial expression of that family uh, in the Houston Heights and shortly thereafter was sent out to plant uh, a new local community in the neighborhood of Montrose. And so uh, it's been a joy. We've been there for about three and a half years now. We've benefited greatly from our relationship with both HCPN uh, and Acts 29. Uh, it's also been a joy uh, to have other local pastors in our neighborhood like Heath uh, alongside of us as well. And so um, our experience in church planting uh, has been a grace uh, in light of the, the relationships that we've experienced both within our little collective uh, and inside these connections that we have here. So, uh, one, just thank you for being here. And like Bruce said, if this is your first or maybe second or third time, stick with it. Um, we've been greatly encouraged um, in that. And so, uh, by God's grace, though, our, our story continues. And that as we commit to making more disciples in our neighborhood and multiplying smaller expressions of the neighborhood church in our parishes is what we call them. Maybe some of you would be more familiar with the term like missional community or small group. Um, we've also had the joy of partnering to plant other churches as well, and so uh, you'll meet hopefully a collection of Sojourn guys if you stick around, but uh, Tony Villatoro in Spring Branch and Taylor Ince in the Galleria area as well. And so uh, our prayer is very simple, um, one that we would make disciples and multiply these smaller communities in the neighborhood of Montrose, uh, a neighborhood that traditionally has been somewhat neglected, but by God's grace, we share with others now. Um, and of course, that, that through that, we would be able to send other people to new parts uh, of the city that need more churches. And so i um, grateful to be partnered with you uh, and with guys like Heath. So I'm going to bring him up and have him tell us about the bridge as soon as he's done hugging, which that's just the guy Heath is. So I, I am a hugger. And, um, if you don't like hugs, don't let me know because that just motivates me all the more. And uh, I'm Keith Haynes, the pastor of the Bridge Montrose. We are a church that planted out of Grace Bible Church in the Heights back in September of 2014. We're an EFCA church. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I came to HCPN my first month in my residency back in August of, uh, or September of uh, 2013. Met Marshall. Um, we worked together for six years and never met and, and, uh, until we showed up at HCPN together. He said, the first thing he said was, Come plant in Montrose. And, uh, and uh, six months later, God affirmed that that was where we would be. And it's been quite an adventure ever since. And, you know, they asked us to kind of share a snapshot. And uh, what I'm tempted to say is, well, we planted a year after Sojourn, so we just copy everything they do a year later, and it works well for us. 
But uh, but <clears throat> all that aside, uh, it, it's a it's an adventure in Montrose. And one of the things we're most grateful for is this relational network, this relational support. And as I talk to guys that are thinking about planting in Houston, it is a gift to them and to me to be able to say, this is what we have, and, and you will you will know this support and this kindness. But as a church, you know, we say that we're a church that commits to a journey, a transformation together toward Jesus for the glory of God. And we know that that pictures uh, just us living this incarnational life in Christ. And we believe that the greatest gospel and kingdom impact we have can be through us living in this unified mission and vision, but in a very diverse expression through the beautiful uh, just array of the body of Christ. And we, and we think the most extraordinary things can be done in the absolutely ordinary way of everyday life. And we try to mobilize our community to that. So that's, that's who we are. It's what we strive for. Of course, we want to be a church that, that you know, unoriginally makes disciples and makes disciples and plants churches that plants churches. And, and, and we're working towards uh, towards that. And uh, But we are just so grateful for this. Again, as Marshall said, if you're if you're new to this, man, I grew up going to a, to AA with my dad. We say keep coming back; it works. <laughs> but uh, but do it's it's an amazing gift, and you know I'm 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 grateful to be co-laborers for the gospel with guys like Marshall and Reed and Russell Cravens and Jeremiah Morris. You know, as, as we're now partnering and ministering in, in Montrose, but I'm actually even more grateful to call them friends. So. Thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, sharing your lives and your ministries with each other. Uh, and we'll keep moving in that direction. It's a courageous thing to go into Montrose and plant a church. Of course, you should do whatever the Lord's leading you to do. But, you know, Montrose is such an expensive place to be. And it's an older neighborhood. And so for some of us who plant it in suburbs, it's a totally different world to go into a place like Montrose and you're going to reach people generally one person at a time and you're going to need tons and tons of money. Money. Here's where we need to grow at HCPN. We need to grow in our ability to involve people that God has uh, blessed with money to come be a part, learn about what church planting is and to begin to give their money to what God is doing in planting churches all across the city. So I, I want to urge you to just join me in asking God to do that, to uh, raise up businessmen and women who have a heart for this work and will give generously to it because those two men are amazing men of God leading great churches in the city, and it just takes a ton of resources to do that. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you are uh, church planters? Let me see church planters in the room. Now, I'm raising my hand, though it's 23 years ago I planted a church, okay? Yeah, a lot of church planters in the room. All right, good. And uh, how many of you came with a church planter? You're part of a, a group that's planting a church. Yeah, thrilled you're here, thrilled you're here. Let, let me give you a little glimpse of uh, what HCPN is, and I won't take long with this, but HCPN really is a network of networks. We think relationship is critically important in the church planting experience. So I'm a part of the Acts 29 network, for instance. Others in, the, in this room are a part of other networks. And yet we come together at HCPN as a network of networks that seeks to strengthen church planters. That's the bottom line for us. As I said earlier, we want church planters to know you're not crazy, that you're investing in things that matter. We want you to know you're not alone, that others are sharing this journey with you. So we want to strengthen church planters to multiply churches to reach every man, woman, and child in the greater Houston area. That's what we hope to see happen. We believe that reaching a city is not about big churches. It's about an infestation of churches that's pushed into every dark corner of the city because of so many different ethnicities in the city, so many different language groups in the city. And so our prayer, our desire, is not to be um, just an Anglo movement or Anglo African American movement or just Asian, unless that's a big category, right? I mean, that every language group and every people group has a representation of the body of Christ, people to whom and through whom God is revealing his glory in the city. That's what we hope to see happen. So when we come together, then uh, we gather 
And typically we bring speakers like you're going to hear today who are experienced practitioners, sometimes authors that can really help you, can really strengthen the church planter. That's one of our hopes. And one of our hopes is that we can pray for the city and really grow our hearts, meld our hearts together as we cry out to God for this city together. Vitally important for who we are as a network of networks. A few years ago, we began to work together in training church planters. And so we've had uh, residencies uh, for a couple of years. We did finishing residencies that were really equipping people in the last year before they planted churches. And some of the people who completed those finishing residencies are in the room. Would you raise your hands so that folks know who you are? They're mostly right over here. Other finishing residents? Yeah, back over here. So, uh, so grateful for these guys and the churches that have helped come alongside them to equip them. Uh, we are on the back end this year of starting a functional residency. A functional residency, uh, we think, is a, a time where someone may be you know, two to three years out from church planting. They're serving in their church, but they're periodically coming together. And this cohort of functional residents, there are 39 of them right now, are being trained and they are being coached by someone, so they have pre, kind of work before the, the training and work after the training, and then they're serving in their churches as they are preparing to then begin to gather a launch team and plant churches. Are there any functional residents in the room? Yeah, there are functional residents around the room as well. So uh, we have a collection of churches then who are giving generously and participating in the training of church planters so that we can see churches multiplied all across the city. If the Lord would lead you to be a part of that, we would invite you to come along and, and join the journey uh, with us if you're a part of an established church. All right. Today, uh, I think you're really going to feel helped by what, what we get to hear and be a part of. My prayer um, as I come to do training most often is just, God, would you help church planters? Would you give them something that when they walk away, they feel deeply encouraged and feel like it's something that will help them in the work that they're doing? The three men who are going to speak briefly today and then offer an opportunity for us to have some dialogue around the tables about what they say, these three men are all practitioners in this city who have invested deeply in the city and, and deeply in people, and so we're honored for them to be here. Jason Shepard is going to speak first. He's the lead pastor of Church Project, that is in the Woodlands. They planted in 2010, and it's a seven-year-old church. They gather now thousands of people in, uh, in a kind of a house church movement. Uh, he and his wife, Brooke, have seven children, and uh, he's a good friend and a blessing to the city. Welcome, Jason Shepard. Hello. How are you? Good to see you. I started Church Project seven years ago, and when I did, I honestly had no idea uh, how to plant a church. I hadn't studied church planting. I hadn't really considered planting a church. I had ideas in my head for many years about what a church would be and what I didn't want to do, like the churches where I worked, but I really didn't expect that I would be planting a church. And so I found myself suddenly um, in the mountains after leaving a church where I worked, just saying, God, I, I really don't know what to do. And so I have some values, but I don't know what this actually looks like. And so God gave me a good gift in constraining me to have my theology, my ecclesiology, my belief about what the church should look like actually lead how we structured our church. And so one of the things that I realized very quickly as I was setting out to plant a church is that my ecclesiology was not really refined. I had some ideas about the church, but most of that was developed from the churches where I had served and um, what I did like and what I didn't like. And so God took me back to the scriptures and I really spent a lot of time pressing into what I saw the early church look like. And that was the model that he gave us. And so I wanted to, as closely as I could, followed this, but I really felt convicted that my ecclesiology should drive my practice in my planting of a church, not my refinement of other practices. 
And so my ecclesiology took me to some things, and we all know that the Bible speaks a lot about the church, but the real question for me became, and I think for us should become, how does my theology of the church actually fit into how I practice the church on a weekly and daily basis? And so I looked at some things, for example, Paul told Titus, Titus chapter one, verse five, the reason I left you in Crete. And so I thought, well, this is a pastoral letter, Paul speaking to a pastor, so I need to listen up here. So he said, the reason I left you in Crete was to straighten out what was unfinished, which is an encouragement for me as a church planner to go, uh, Paul planted churches and there was plenty unfinished later on. And so I left you in Crete, Titus, to straighten out what was unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Crete is mountainous. It's hard to get across the place. Paul was telling Titus, you can't get to all the people. And so we need to have leadership available for everyone in all of these cities. And so part of my ecclesiology began to be refined here, saying we need leadership available for everyone. And I compared that to the practice that I would have continued to perpetuate, which is a clergy-heavy church where most churches in America, 98% of churches spend 97% of their money on their buildings and on their staff. And so I said, how can we have a church that spends less money on clergy but still has leadership available for everyone? So my theology began to refine my actuality, my practice of the church. And so I wanted to set up a church where we could have, as Paul told Titus, leadership available for everyone, where the paid clergy central wasn't the point because people in Crete couldn't have access to Titus and people here don't always have access to a pastor. And so through that and through other verses like Paul told Titus, urge the younger women to love their husbands and children and speaking to older people, spending time with younger people. And I started thinking, where do older people and younger people really mix their lives together in church? other than some program that we might try to create, how does this live naturally in the life of the church? So I started wrestling again with my ecclesiology based upon what these scriptures are telling me, older and younger people together, this cross-generational gathering, leadership available for everyone. And then I would read verses like Colossians chapter four, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Or Romans chapter 16, verse 5, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Philemon's chapter 1, verse 2, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And so I would know, hey, the church is gathering by the thousands on Sundays, but then they're gathering by the dozens in people's homes. And so God keeps pressing in my, my theology of church through his scriptures, and I put together this idea that I called Church Project. It was never meant to be a name. It was just an idea, and it stuck. I was pretty stupid, still am, fairly rebellious, and still am. And I would ask questions like, well, what was the name of the early church in Rome or wherever, and in Laodicea? And people would say, I don't know. And I would say, that's right. You don't need a church name. And I was just rebellious and raw and rugged. But at the end of the day, you know, the name for us hasn't really mattered, and I don't even know what our name will become one day, if we'll ever get a real name. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll just always be a project. But the idea for me that God constrained to me was, let's see your theology and practice in the church. And so I wanted to be sure that I could sit down and explain to someone from the scriptures why I do what I do. And so my challenge to us as pastors and planters is to make sure that what we practice is based upon uh, being a practitioner of the word, applying the church here. And so rather than first thinking of vision and strategies and systems and all these things which are important first, what is the context in which we will place it and what drives our creation of this context? I think we are constrained to investigate this in the word. The beauty of what we've seen, as I have two minutes left, I'll tell you, Things that I love. I'll give you an example. Uh, This past uh, weekend, there was a huge uh, storm up in the woodlands. An apartment complex caught on fire. And uh, we had uh, a young family in our church. Their apartment was burned to the ground. I found out about this a day and a half later. And uh, then I made some bad joke about a hot dog because their dog got burned up and died in the fire. And I then 
limited the damage from that stupid comment. But um, I found out about it later because uh, already the house church pastor was on it. They had already been given and donated an entire apartment of furniture to replace all of this clothes, money. A house church was self-contained in, the, in this, and we have dozens and dozens of these kinds of things, little communities happening all over where it's not dependent upon me, and leadership is available for everyone. Benevolence happens in a house church where we read in Acts 2. People were meeting one another's needs and selling their goods and helping each other. It doesn't happen through the centrality of the church office that I can't find in the Word. So maybe you'll find different things in the Scripture than me. Some of us for sure, some of the same things, some of us different things. But my challenge for us is to let's base our practice of the church through our ecclesiology. Yeah, that's my time, I think. Bruce, thank you. I'm going to ask a, just a brief follow-up, and then I'll give these guys a, a question for their table. So it was clear to me you say, start with the Bible. I mean, let theology drive everything. Have there been helpful models for you as you're shaping uh, the, the strategy of your church? If so, kind of what's been helpful, what hasn't been helpful in terms of that? Um, no. <laughs> I... I, I, I No, I I really didn't find a model for me that I felt like I can do that because I I became so convicted about some things that I didn't want to say anyone else was wrong, but I didn't feel like this would be right for me, any model that I saw. So I did learn from Soma communities some beautiful things that they were doing, but um, they were more homogeneously gathered around mission than they were cross-generational and diverse, even in mission in a house church. So I didn't find any exact model, but I learned some from them. That was probably the most helpful model. Great. So I think one thing we can learn from that is that we can learn from people who have a different model, but we can learn something that we can import and shape uh, in, in the model that, that we're leading ourselves. So around your table, here's the question I would encourage you to uh, take a few minutes to, to discuss. Uh, what is my theology of the church? And by the way, there's not going to be time for everybody to share their theology of the church around your table. Uh, but more importantly, uh, maybe the real question is, how does my ecclesiology drive the small gatherings of the church? How does your ecclesiology drive the small gatherings of the church? I'm literally going to give you five minutes around the table to discuss this. All right. I know all of you are just now really getting started in this conversation, and this is our frustration of the day for sure. <clears throat> so, church planter, take this with you. Ecclesiology, that is your theology about the church, really should drive how you do church. Let theology be the foundation for how we lead the church. Um, when church planters ask me what's the best model for planting a church, uh, I generally give them this answer. I say, there's not a best model. Know this, whatever model you choose, you choose your problems. Because there's no one model that doesn't carry with it some inherent challenges. So let theology drive that, not problem solving or avoidance, but What is your theology? What do you believe? Then let that drive how you plant the church. Lawrence Scott will come next. Lawrence is the lead pastor of Harvest Point Fellowship in Pearland. They planted in 2014. Uh, Lawrence is uh, working on his doctorate at DTS. He's married to Shannon. They have five kids, and uh, they've just been killing it in Pearland. I'm just grateful for his leadership overall in the city. Lawrence, come share with us. Good afternoon. We are all familiar with the serious conflict or conflict between Paul and Barnabas and how that conflict led to ministry happening in different areas. The reality of church planting, as we all know, is that there will be moments of conflict. 
One of the things that helped us early, the question was asked to me, what is that decision that you made that was one of the most crucial decisions you made in the life of the early church plant? We've been here about three and a half years, three years, two months. And one of the main decisions we made that I made was being comfortable without counseling. Uh, being comfortable with the fact that there will be people who will come and be a part of your launch team, core team, but they never really get on board with your mission, vision, and values. And having a healthy way to help that person, those individuals, transition out of the church. Now, as a church planner, no one wants to talk about losing people, right? I mean, we already want to make sure people want to hear us or want to come and be a part of the gathering. We're concerned about financial things, meeting the budget and all those things. But this was one of the things that once we made this decision to be comfortable with it, see the value in it and do it in a healthy way, it really helped our church grow uh, deeper uh, and wider. Uh, a few things I, I, I like to consider whenever I decide whether or not this conversation needs to happen with somebody who just got on the leadership team or on the launch team at the time, uh, there, there are four categories, and I use the acronym NOPE, N-O-P-E. I could have used OPEN, but NOPE sounds better. Um, and so uh, with NOPE, I, I kind of put these people in these areas, and again, not bad, right, but it just, it's a sign for me that maybe we need to engage and have a deeper conversation before this gets bad. So the first group, the N of people, uh, are the people who say, uh, this is not what I expected, right? Uh, and to be fair, if you planted a church, um, all of us fit in that category at one point. And it's not just about being in that category, it's how you respond to this not being what I expected when you launch. And now, if you're in a school, for example, you have to have a team to sit up and break down, this is not what I expected, I thought, that it would be like the church we came from, right? That person who came from the larger ministry who's on your church planning team who has enthusiasm, but then it settles in that your children's ministry is not as nice as the other one, right? And so uh, the real issue is, how do you respond to this not being what you expected? Do you dig deeper? Do we gather around the vision? Do we understand what the Lord is calling us to, or do we retreat from that? So the first group I try to look at is, is there someone on the launch team, core team, who's in that, that area, this is not, a, not what I expected, and how are they responding to it? Are they pushing against it, or are they digging deeper and, and coming along? The second group, the old group, uh, is the bring their own agenda people. Uh, and we all have those uh, individuals who want to bring their own agenda. And I'm not talking about the person who wants to bring new ideas to help fle uh, flesh out some things as you lay vision and mission out and you can kind of think through it based on their equipping or experience. I'm talking about the person who literally wants to do their own thing. And one of the things for us, we had a guy who, who joined our church pretty early, got him involved pretty early, and he brought some ideas that were not consistent to where the Lord was leading our church or maybe six months in, and uh, he was like, well, I'm going to still do it. And so him and his wife kind of had like a side ministry. And so they were doing a women's conference and, and that thing and passing out flyers at the church. And then people were coming to me and like, hey, what's up with the women's conference? You haven't mentioned it. I'm like, I don't know about it. And so kind of had to sit down with that guy and say, no, you kind of have your own thing going on. What is a healthy way to help you leave? And we helped him leave uh, in a very healthy, healthy way. Um, the third group is, uh, the P, is for the personality, not pastor person, right? That's the person who likes you, right? You remember that time you preached that great sermon when you were the student pastor at the other church, but you had like 27 weeks to prepare for it because you only preached twice a year? And then someone loved you so much, they followed you to be a part of this church, and they like you, they like your personality, maybe you're preaching, but they didn't really see you as a pastor, and now that you're kind of saying, hey, this is where we're going, they're like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if this is really what I want to do. So I try to identify that person. And then, and then finally, the fourth uh, category is the exit strategist person, the person who you've talked off the ledge like 10 times, right? They, they, they've been trying to leave, right? But, you know, can we talk, right? They give good and you, you don't want to lose people because, you, you know, and, and it's, it's that person that every Sunday you come, you're looking you're at the door, you're greeting, but you're really kind of looking to see if they're coming back. And you've, you've talked them off the ledge too many times, but they really want to leave. So these groups of people, I ask myself, okay, is it time to have that conversation? Like, right, because ultimately we can work through some of this, but sometimes we need to talk. 
And what happens when we have that conversation, a few things happen. The first thing is it gives me an opportunity uh, to give clarity to mission, vision, and values. Here's the truth. Sometimes there is conflict or someone is pushing against mission, vision, values, maybe because it has not been communicated clearly enough. Now, I know you have it at the bottom of your email address. It's on your voicemail. It's on every handout. You got banners. You tell everybody at every meeting, but people still miss it, right? And so when I sense one of those individuals and we're having that conversation, let's revisit this thing because now here's an opportunity to provide some clarity. So the first thing it, it does is allow me to provide clarity. And ultimately, this may be an opportunity maybe to transition you out of leadership right now or, or do something different, but you may not leave the church. Leave the church. Uh, secondly, it also helps us to prevent uh, other confusion and, and, and brokenness, right? Um, when there's a person, as much as we church planners want to have people, when there's a person who's pushing against mission, vision, value for that local church, Ultimately, other people will be brought into that situation. It will become much worse than it needs to be. And so in order to prevent that confusion, we try to identify that and then help them uh, do something different. Uh, uh, thirdly, a uh, peace. And what I mean by peace is um, after that person, if they do leave that church, it's not like they leave the world, right? You're probably going to run into them again. And I know for us in, in Pearland, there's a gym right down the way from us. There's a couple of people who are part of that gym that I go to. Now, I go there. They actually work out when they're in there. Um, but, there, you know, there was a guy who we had to help transition, and it could be real awkward seeing people outside of the church who are no longer part of the church plant who out in the streets in the store. And so I want to make sure that, hey, I recognize you're not going to be here, but let's do this in a way that when we see each other, there can still be a positive testimony from our experience. Let me value what you had brought to the table and so forth to have that peace. Uh, and then lastly, the fourth P uh, is that it actually promotes collaboration. And what I mean by that is that in Pearland, I know there's a number, if you're in Pearland, raise your hand, a number of pastors in this place in Pearland. Uh, it's a cool thing to be able to sit down with a person that I recognize. We got to have this out counseling conversation and say, hey, you know, the Lord is still gifted. You're still valuable. It just doesn't work here. Um, but hey, Chris is right up the street. And by the way, Chris, if I send somebody, it's because they're good. Amen. Uh, Chris, right? Chris is right up the street and you're banned. And I think that'd be a good mix. So it, it allows us to have a greater rapport with the other churches and pastors in the, in the area and also say to this person, hey, the Lord is still doing a great work, just not over here. Amen. And maybe we can help you uh, transition. Once we got on board with that and got comfortable with it, uh, I don't know about some of the more uh, mature churches. It's never easy, at least for me at this point, to see people go, but um, it, it's healthy and I see the kingdom part of it. And ultimately, everyone is not called to Harvest Point, but God can still use them. So when, when we got on board with the out, out, out counseling piece, uh, that really helped us take it to the next level. So how many of you have heard of out counseling before this conversation? I didn't think so. So not a lot of us. We, we want people to come. We want them to stay. And for some of us, there's this unwritten rule that, hey, God sent them. I have to accept them. You know, I have to be the pastor to them. What changed your mind? Well, and I think that's key because, again, the whole, whole idea of having the conversation, you're going to that conversation hoping that something can work in here. But it becomes clear and many of us probably can think of someone when there's a person who is simply not on board with that local church. And as a pastor of a church and leadership, we have a responsibility to everyone else there as well. And so it's like, hey, you're a part of the universal church. You just may not be a part of this local church, but we want to help you get to that next place. So when, when we are doing out counseling, no, when you are doing out counseling with these people, you know, and it, You've evidently had at least four conversations. Yeah. yeah. So uh, is there a standard way you do that, that conversation? I mean, do you have like a framework in your mind that you're, you know you're going to lead them through these, these points that you could share with us, or with these church planners who need to do some out counseling? So a few things. God is so good that some people, and you know this, would just leave on their own. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Um, 
I'm not, I don't, I don't look for confrontation, and, but I don't run from it. So what I try to do is say, you know, go to the Lord, pray about it, because I know, you know, this may go either way. But I pray about it, and I just have a real conversation about, hey, this is what we do, right? They don't even, I don't say, hey, I'm inviting you to an out counseling session, right? I just meet with the person, and I say, hey, this is what we do, and how do you feel about that? Oh, you like that? Well, I notice you do this. How does that line up with this? Oh, it doesn't. Hey, but this may be valuable. Hey, there's a guy named Chris, right? I mean, that's the short version. But it's, it's really, what I found, though, is that most of the times when you get to the place where you clarify mission and vision, and again, this shows my own lack of ability to communicate vision, I guess, all the time. Well, most of the times we clear it up at that part. So it's, I've had some conversations. God has sent some people away. Um, but most of the time, once there's more clarity about it, uh, people get on the same page. But if they don't, I think it's healthy to have a way to transition them somewhere else. Well, let's thank Lawrence for sharing with us. Thank you, brother. Hopefully you saw in that there's a difference between out counseling and discipline. And so out counseling, somebody doesn't fit. We need to help them see that they, they don't fit. They're not running the same place that we're running. Uh, that's different than discipline. You know, I, I was in a community that none of the churches practiced discipline, and so what they did is they traded angry people from church to church for years. And seriously, it became a defining issue in that small community because there was not a single church that was led evidently by the kind of leader who believed in church discipline that would practice in a way that practice correction in a way that God could then use to help transform that community. So don't think out counseling is discipline. You don't send someone else your problems. Out counseling is helping people find a place where they fit better to do what they believe God has called them to do. Okay, uh, Curtis Jones is going to come in just a moment. Uh, Curtis is the pastor at Bio City Fellowship. They're a church uh, with two locations in the city, one in Cyprus and one in Spring Branch. They planted in 2013. Uh, Curtis is married to Amanda, and they have three children. Welcome, Curtis Jones. Thanks, Bruce. So the question was, uh, what is the most crucial decision that you made in starting your church? There were about 10 different things, I think, on any set of 10 days that I would have chosen. But uh, on today, um, I think the most important thing that we did was to build a culture where people were empowered. Um, in two weeks, we'll host one of our more important gatherings. It's a conference for single moms called Overflow. And it's not just for Bayou City. We just get the privilege of hosting it. And uh, it represents so much of the heart that we want to have at church and to come along uh, single moms and encourage them, build them up, help uh, train them in a very, very difficult um, season of life. And uh, we didn't invent it. A lady in our church, God called, stirred. Uh, she made that known. And uh, now these years later, we do whatever we can to help her, to support her, to resource her. Uh, but she still leads it. And I'm convinced that every person in my church has a calling on their lives, a kingdom assignment where Jesus will be glorified and they will be fulfilled. And I feel like my job is to make sure that they can hear that, step out, fulfill it. And I believe our church is better when everyone does that. First, because it's biblical. I mean, you know what Paul said to the Ephesians, the pastors like us, our job is to equip the saints for the works of service. It's not actually to do the works of service, but to help other people, to recruit them, to raise them up, to release them into their acts. Um, I think it's also a way to build a church in Houston. You know, here's what we know about Houston. Uh, the need is growing, ever growing. Um, the need will be greater in Houston when we leave than when we arrived. Somebody moved into this city somewhere, maybe in a neighborhood near you. We also know that church planting starting is an efficient way to meet that need. And some people say it's the most effective way to meet that need. And if you've already started your church, you understand why. I think our average person at Bayou City will invite 10 people to church in the next year. 
people that they know on Facebook, a friend, somebody who moves in, a stranger, they'll invite 10 people. But when you started your church, you know that you invited 10 people in the first week. And then you invited another 10 the second week because you were sure those first 10 wouldn't show back up for the second week. So when you're starting a church, you invite twice as many people in two weeks as a normal person will invite in a year. So the need is growing. Church starting is an effective way to meet that need. We know that. We believe that. And yet, Houston feels crowded with churches. Uh, Now, maybe you don't feel that, but when we were starting Bayou City, and still today, um, you wonder how you're going to break through all of the church noise. Because there are some world-class churches here who, because of time and giftedness, have world-class PR. And when you're starting a church, you have neither one of those. You don't have any time and you don't have any PR. I remember after our first Easter, our church was about eight months old, and we had an incredible day. A huge number of people, full service, fun, enjoyable, celebrated the resurrection. And we came home, the most people that we had ever had. We eat at Whataburger after church every Sunday, you know, because I exercise standing up there and talking and, uh, you know, need a burger to fill uh, it afterwards. And so we had gotten our water burger on Easter Sunday. I was sitting on the couch, getting ready to take my 20 minute nap and scrolling through, you know, because what I'm looking for is all of my, my people who were like, that was the most unbelievable service that's ever happened since Jesus's resurrection. It was like that Sunday and then this Sunday at Bayou City. Could not have been uh, happier about where we were. And the church that we came from uh, also was on Instagram and uh, they had 8,000 that day. It, uh, it was like all of the goodwill and all of the energy and all of the joy that I had felt was just totally sucked out. Now, you're a better person than me, and you know we're all on the same team and all of that. But when you start a church, or at least when I was starting our church, I loved it with all of my heart. And I knew its weaknesses, and I knew all that, but I loved it, and we had given our lives to it. And so... When you see other people succeeding and everything is going really well for them and you know how hard it is for you, Houston feels crowded sometimes. And maybe you're not feeling that way. Uh, maybe you've got plenty, plenty of space in, your, in your, your, your spot. But I still feel insecure about that. Now, I think about the amazing communicators in this city. Some of the greatest gospel communicators live in the zip codes that you and I live in. I, I think about the music in churches in Houston. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, I, I think about facilities that other people have. I think about this facility that I'm in right now. This is awesome. The fellowship hall. I would take this fellowship hall right now. If this was the only thing they would give me, I would take it. They can keep their kitchen. It's fine. We don't even need that. We'll order out. You know, it was discouraging to me to realize I can read every book on preaching that's out there. I can practice, I can practice, I can get feedback, and I still might not be in the top 10 communicators in this city. That's discouraging. You know, no world-class musician is probably showing up to your one-year-old church plan. We meet in a school, one of our campuses still meets in a school, and this past Easter, uh, we got to set up on Thursday, you know, which is like a huge answer to prayer because we were doing an early uh, 8 o'clock service, and we thought, well, if we can set up on Thursday, it'd be great. Nobody has to show up super early on Sunday morning. And, and so you, as your church is familiar with, the kids' ministry is the biggest thing, and it's got all the equipment. And so some of our crew were in the cafeteria setting up the kids' ministry. I was in the auditorium. This is, this is about 3 or 4 o'clock after school's out, and uh, one of our staff comes over and says, hey, the official from the school, is, uh, you need to come and talk to them. And they were telling us, after we had set it all up, we were done. Uh, you got to take it down. We got something here on Saturday. You got to take it down. And uh, super kind and uh, filled with the spirit, I said, I am not taking it down. <laughs> and he said, you got to take it down. And I said, I am not taking it down. Look at me in the eyes. I am not taking it down. So you call whoever you got to call because we're not taking this down. And so he made a phone call and uh, God glorified, we didn't have to take it down. We had to take like some of it down, but it was a compromise. I feel like it was still a win. (laughs) But, you know, there are churches in the city that not only do they not have to deal with that, but their facilities work for them, you know. Uh, And so 
you know, like on my way to church, I drive by at least four of those churches just to get to my church, which one of the campuses meets in a school. And I think about my people. I think about your people. They got to drive by those churches. And again, you're a better person than I am, but that stuff makes me insecure. But I have found in four years that there is a secret that is better than world-class communication, world-class music, and world-class facilities, and that is responsibility. If somebody in my church has been stirred by God and he puts meaningful responsibility in their hands, that they know that they are making a difference, Billy Graham could come in his prime and start a church next door and they would not leave because everyone wants to matter. And so when I meet somebody new that's on the edge of of jumping into our family, what I tell them is in a year from now, I want you on a Sunday morning when the music is blaring, and we do have world-class music. You don't start out with world-class music, but you do grow into it. And your preaching does get better. I said, I want you to look up when it's full and it's fun and everybody is having a great time. And I want you to be able to say, I matter here. Because if you can't say in a year from now that you matter here, then I don't know that you'll be in this family very long. Because I think about uh, the feeding of the 5,000. I was reading out this week. And you know, Jesus says to his disciples, um, you feed them. Gives them an impossible task. I mean, you know all the math. 5,000 men, so 10,000 people at least. They're out in the wilderness. He says, you feed them. Impossible task. Just like he's placed in our hands. Impossible task. Build the church. Impossible. But then the combination of Jesus' power and what? The resources that the disciples found in the pockets of the people fed all of those people. I think it's still the same formula for us. The power of Jesus and the resources that he's placed in the people that call our churches home. That's more than enough to do what he's asked us to do. And that will break through the noise, even if Houston feels a little crowded every now and then. So that's what I think is our most uh, crucial decision today, but tomorrow maybe something different. So good. So um, what do what do some of us do that keep that from happening in our churches? What are we doing, maybe you know, unknowingly, that hinders empowerment? Well, I can only speak for personal experience. I, I know I was really good at it in the beginning when uh, we were starting. And then once you start to get a little bit of growth and some momentum and good things happen, I had this instinct to control it all. Because once you get that momentum, then you don't want that momentum to, to die. Uh, so you start controlling it. And then uh, a few years ago, uh, I had to ask myself a tough question uh, because uh, we were bringing elders on board and, you know, what's their job and what's my job? And my guideline was, do you love the church as much as me? Because if you don't love the church as much as me, then I don't want to share any of my leadership with you, which is impossible if you're the one who started it because no one loves it more than you, mostly. I mean, you may hate it on a Monday morning, but you love it again by Monday night. Um, and I had to ask myself, am I a good enough leader to accomplish the mission and vision even if someone else is making the decisions? And that was a real defining moment for me because I think I was afraid that I wasn't a good enough leader. And I wasn't, if I wasn't the one really in the mix shaping the decisions that once they were made, we wouldn't accomplish our vision. And, and so really, I had a real come to Jesus moment and really internalized. And so I think for me, it was fear, control, and then the ability to go, I think I am a good enough leader uh, to take all of these things that God has called all these people to do and work it towards the ultimate goal so what I hope you were able to see in these three men is they still have a light in their eyes I mean they they've been in the journey and uh, all of their churches have um, have reached people and I can tell you it's it's been hard but they, they still have light in their eyes. So you can survive this. You can last. Um, and we can't last alone. So the, 
the likelihood of you thriving in your near future is very closely related to the degree of isolation that you feel or don't feel right now. So what I want you to hear me say by that in that is that um, if you feel really isolated, then take the time to connect with some people in this room or maybe you have some friends that you just haven't connected with, but let people look you in the eye, look in their eye, uh, pray for you, you pray for them and share the journey along the way because it can be very isolating, but don't, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Um, the other thing that I hope you see in these men is that they're really devoted to uh, their churches thriving. And so there are things to learn along the way. I mean, they're sharing with us out of challenges that they've had and things that they've had to learn and problems that they've had to face. And I assure you, it, it's still true in my home. I've been the pastor of Clear Creek Community Church 23 years that when we face big challenges, they make, it, they make their way into my kitchen in my home. In other words, we're never so isolated or I should say insulated from the issues going on in our church that they don't make it into the intimate conversations in our home. Why? Because what Curtis said, we love the church because we love his church. And uh, so that's why we, we need Jesus and we need his people. We need Jesus and his people. He is our life. And we find with his people strength to know him and to walk with him. So if you would, uh, let's thank these men again for investing in us today. And I want to uh, lead us now into just a time of prayer, and we're going to pray around our tables. Uh, what we want to pray for today, two things. Let's, let's pray for the encouragement of church planters who are in this room, and let's pray that uh, God would raise up business people, businessmen, businesswomen who will have a heart for church planting and see the value of investing deeply in the work of planting churches across the city. So let's join our hearts in asking God for that. If you would, someone lead out your table. Uh, I will give you about, well, just a few minutes, and then I'll come and close our prayer time.